all about for us, isn't it? It's a time to consider the great suffering that Jesus had to endure so that we could truly, he could truly make a safe path for us to escape. To focus on a season uh, for us of deep sorrow and heartache. And I think it's okay for us to have seasons of deep heartache and sorrow. Because that deep heartache and sorrow can bring about great gratitude in our hearts for him. So thank you. During this Lent season, we've been focused, focusing our teaching segments of our gathering on suffering. The suffering of Jesus. And answering the question, why? Why did he have to suffer? And our last two weeks have predominantly been focused on the suffering of Jesus uh, on the cross. Today's message is focused on an aspect of Jesus' suffering that we don't often talk about. It's an amazing passage. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, starting halfway through verse 14. And then also put your finger in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 15. This is what God's holy word, his holy Bible says. Since the children, those who are going to be saved, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Verse 15. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful, high faithful, high priest in the service of God, a sympathetic high priest. And that he might make atonement for the sins of his people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 now. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And that's what we desire right now. We have need, Jesus. And you listen to us. You are not an angry, over-domineering God. You are a grace, grace-filled, merciful, caring God. And we come to you for help this morning. Come and help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So the book of Hebrews has always been one of my favorites. I can remember reading it when I was, first began to follow Jesus and thinking that the Bible just had so much more to offer than all that I'd wasted my life on up to that point. You see, I'd focused all of my attention on how to medicate or how to compensate and didn't realize what life would be like if I allowed God to help me focus on what what it meant to grow up in him. 
reading the scripture for me then and still today feels like sometimes stumbling on a gold mine. You just find something that's just of the greatest value. And we have a passage laid out for us today that's just like that. You see, the book of Hebrews paints an amazing picture for us of Jesus and his two kinds of perfect. What does it mean that Jesus had two kinds of perfect? Well, I'll tell you. Our Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus being, uh, was, being, was both God and man and was perfect both as God and perfect as man. That Jesus' life had more to it than just the ending that we're so familiar with, his, his cross and his resurrection, that he had two kinds of perfect. The first perfect is the one that we're probably most familiar with. I mean, it's a basic fundamental aspect of what we believe as Christ followers, that Jesus is actually God, that he is by very nature God, Philippians 2.6, the perfect image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, that he was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made, John 1, that he receives worship as God, Matthew 2 and Matthew 28 among many, and that he's described as God uh, and is described exactly as we see God described through the pages of the scripture as the Alpha and the Omega, the one without beginning and without end, Revelation twenty-two thirteen. Well, I think that all of us have a pretty good grasp of what the Bible teaches about Jesus being God, don't we? Well, what's this second type of perfect that the, that the book of Hebrews paints for us? Because it's not quite that obvious. The scripture teaches us that Jesus, in order to save all of us, to save humanity, needed to clothe himself in humanity. John 1 says that Jesus then stepped down from heaven and made his home, his tabernacle, among us. We can read it in Hebrews 2, verse 14, the passage that we just read moments ago. It says this, that he too chose to share our humanity, our humanness, our weakness, So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. But for us to understand Jesus' second kind of perfect, the thing that we're starting with today, there's something else that's very critical for us to understand. We can see it in passages like Philippians 2, 6 through 9, which says this. Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used for his own advantage. Some of you might have a version of the Bible that says retained. That's one and the same. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus' high calling from God was to, with no advantage of his deity, do the, the one thing that, that Adam was never able to do, and that's to say no over and over and over and over again perfectly. And in doing so, Jesus was able to become the perfect source of salvation for all who would receive him. I mean, look at Hebrews 5.8 for a moment. I mean, this is the picture that we get from the, <coughs> excuse me, the original language. It says this, that even though Jesus was God's son, 
He had to learn from experience what it was like to obey when obeying meant suffering. You see, Jesus was now clothed in a body, wasn't he? And saying no to sin was entirely a different experience. That he and his body would feel sorrow and pain, feelings and emotions uh, that would grip him. And this is how the scripture teaches us that Jesus recognized a second type of perfect. Again, the perfect source of salvation would be perfected through suffering. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us very clearly the type of suffering that he would experience. It says this, that his suffering was in every respect a temptation just as we experience. That his suffering was a temptation exactly like the temptation that we experience day in and day out. In fact, the the wording is in every respect. Are you tempted sexually? So is he. Were you tempted to worry? Jesus was tempted to be anxious and worried. Are you tempted to desire what doesn't belong to you? It's called covetousness. Jesus was tempted just as we are. Does something small like food have control over you? In every respect, Jesus was tempted as we are. In fact, you can see this one right in Matthew 4. You know, one of the most powerful things that any of us who struggle can experience is knowing that you're not alone. You have somebody that's experienced that very same thing that would be willing to partner up with you and walk with you. And that's exactly what our text today is teaching us related to Jesus himself. Jesus has been there and he understands everything that we're feeling today. But regarding sin, there's a very clear delineation between Jesus' experience as our rescue and, and ours. And you can see it in verse 15 that he was in every respect tempted as we are, but he was without sin. You know, remember Philippians 2 that we just read. I mean, he chose no advantage of his deity, and he still said no every time. Some of you would like to know more about what the Bible actually says about temptation, so I, I think we should go there right now. James 1, 13 through 15 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by their own evil desire they're dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You see, Jesus, being God, was only able to be tempted because he chose to be clothed in humanity. Jesus' body hungered similarly to how our bodies hunger. But it's important to remember that hunger only turns into sin when we act on it by pleasing ourselves in ways that would be contrary to God's will for our lives. Jesus, in that regard, was perfect. Galatians 5, 
17 also teaches us about temptation. It says this, For the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. Romans 8, 5 says this, Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. You see, these are passages that show us uh, that we could be tempted by our flesh, by our own human desires. Well, how else can we be tempted? The scripture is very clear from passages like Genesis 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Luke 22, 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 2, that Satan and minions are also tempters. How else can we be tempted? We could be tempted by the world to love it, to, to bow down to it instead of God. Mark 4, Ephesians 2. And I want to pause right here for a moment. And I want to just take us, just for a moment, a different direction. Because there are some of you here that about five minutes ago uh, got stuck focusing on one aspect of the scripture that we're covering today. And it's this one. For some of you, it seems very strange that to lump temptation into the category of suffering. I mean, it seems like suffering is more attached to things like extreme pain or, or terminal illnesses or, or mourning the loss of someone that you love. You see, these are the things that we would think of as obstacles to what we would perceive as a, a happy life. You see, Jesus equated a happy life as one that was filled with relational intimacy with his God and Father. You see, it was that intimacy that Jesus prized the most. I mean, more than any other thing. So temptation for him was rightly perceived by Jesus as a direct attack on the very thing that he valued the most in his life. Do you see it? That's why the Bible is so clear to us that the pursuit of God, the abiding relationship that we can have with God himself is the key to beginning to overcome sin and waywardness in our own lives. Do you hear that? Pursuing Jesus yourself, investing in real life and relationship with him yourself is the key to navigating through all of the brokenness and the sin that that binds us as a family right now. You can go to a house church, you can go to a small group, but any house church and small group devoid of relationship, true relationship with Jesus Christ is a band-aid and not uh, uh, something that God will use to heal you in your life. You see, God would have us build a relationship with him by following Jesus' example. He really wants us to taste and see that he's good. He wants us to know that life with God is way better than the biggest life that the world has to offer. You see this deep intimacy with Jesus uh, that Jesus had with his father, this intimacy that was like no other, was one of the reasons why Jesus resisted sin like no other. There's no seminary degree family that's needed in order for us to draw near closely, to draw closely to God. You don't need to be able to read Hebrew and, and Greek to be able to draw near today to God. 
You need to just simply surrender. We need to just simply surrender our lives to Him. Make giving up control to God a reoccurring all through the day experience for yourself. Ask Him to fill you with His Holy Counselor, the Holy Spirit. Fill yourself with His Holy Word and then walk with Him closely and allow God to help you not a Uh, Not allow the flesh, the enemy in the world to wedge its way in between you and your relationship with him. Do that with us, Jesus, please. Back to our text. So what is this byproduct that we see in Jesus' life as a result of his faithful obedience to God? You can see it in chapter 2, verse 18. It tells us the byproduct of Jesus' close life with God is sympathy. It's empathy. His suffering has created sympathy towards us. He's become a sympathetic high priest, the text says. You see, now as Jesus has ascended to heaven, as he sees us tempted... He's marked with the memory and the deep feelings associated with his own temptations. His heart is pricked and moved by seeing us choosing him above lesser things. And his help is marked with compassion for us. He longs to see us become more like him. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was, it was uh, 11 years ago. And Allie and I were living in Anchorage, Alaska a long way from home, and we've been trying uh, for quite a long time to conceive our first child. And I'll never forget, I, I came home from work, and I could tell that Allie was excited. She had kind of emailed me a couple times and called me a couple times, and I got home, and she just had this glow about her, and she says, I'm pregnant. And so we did what uh, most couples do. We just waited and waited and waited and waited to tell anybody and then we began to let it out slowly but surely. You know, we let our closest friends know and we let the family know. And uh, we began to get a card occasionally. And all of those things were just these, these things that caused us to become more and more excited. And so it was one of these Friday afternoon appointments that we had for just a checkup, an ultrasound. And, and we just really had grown to enjoy these times, you know, that our our doctor and nurses that were taking care of us were just awesome. We'd go in there and we'd chit-chat and, and connect and have fun, and there'd just be joy, real happiness in that doctor's office. Well, within the first 10 minutes of this visit, uh, we noticed that things were different. And these doctors were kind of staring pretty intently into this uh, computer screen. And after about 15 more minutes, this doctor looked at us and said, I think it'd be wise if you just went right up the street here, no big deal, right up the street here, and get kind of a, a, a deeper look, a, a better ultrasound of what's going on with your baby. So we did, and Al and I were just kind of looking at each other and saying, we don't know what's going on, but this is all good. We went in there, and I'll never forget this, this ultrasound tech. He was a guy that was maybe in his middle 20s, and he just looked at the screen after five or seven minutes and just looked at us and said, I just want to tell you that uh, you no longer have a viable pregnancy. And then he just got up and left. 
And I looked at Allie, and, and uh, she was fighting back tears, and I left, and I just kind of filled out whatever paperwork was necessary for us to fill out, and uh, all the way home, I mean, the tears were flowing in the car. We tried really hard. We really sought God for this baby, and now he or she was lost. And I can still remember that season really clearly because it was the winter, and we would often go out in the evening, and, and Allie gets cold really easy. She, she would bundle up sometimes literally in two big down puffy jackets, and we would laugh at our shadows in the streetlights. I mean, we looked like the Stay Puff Marshmallow couple. <laughs> and we didn't have answers at all to what God was doing, and he certainly wasn't shielding us from feeling massive loss in that season, but we knew we had him. And now I see my bride interact with women who share the same sense of loss. And I see real sympathy, empathy flowing out of her and often leading to the beginnings of some healing and restoration in those she's meeting with. And that's exactly the heart of the next point in the message today. You see, Jesus is not just a sympathetic savior. Jesus is a sympathetic liberator who is willing to break through, help break through anyone who's willing to come to him for life. You see, Jesus' sympathy towards us has a purpose. His sympathy uh, is not an end to itself, but the beginning of a liberated life. Romans 2.4 says it this way, that it's God's kindness, isn't it? that leads us to the place of asking for forgiveness. It leads us to repentance. So in other words, the pathway of God, the pathway that God's created for us to move towards freedom in our lives is the pathway of his kindness, not his discipline or reprove, but it's his kindness. And we see it in our text today, don't we? Go back to verse, or chapter 4, verse 15, and couple it back to back with the next verse. Verse 16 says this, we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize, to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Verse 16, let us then, in other words, because of this great reality, in other words, on the basis of all that Jesus had to endure, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that uh, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How does he show sympathy? Why does he show sympathy? He shows sympathy so that we can receive help. A question. What right do we have to approach God's throne confidently? I mean, if we're in the same boat together, when I make poor decisions, a confident approach to God's throne is probably the last thing on my mind. I'll give you the answer. We can approach God's throne confidently. One, because of Romans 3.23, we all share the same failure, don't we? We're all desperately needy, aren't we? Number two, we're all tempted in the same way as Jesus himself was tempted. Think about that. Number three, when we get to God's throne, we will find just what we need, the grace and the mercy, 
the understanding and good favor of God, which will lift us up and out and to Him. See, His grace and His mercy, He extends to us, really does have one purpose, doesn't it? That sympathy is aimed at one end, isn't it? And that is that we would receive help from Him. You see all the support, all the strength, all the wisdom, all the courage, all that we desperately need to navigate out of our stumbling, he graciously offers at his throne of grace. You see, as we're blown and tossed around on the open sea of our bad decisions, we cry out to help for him, and we can experience him over and over and over again, just reach out and extend his hand and lift us out. Hear the very words of God today. His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What thing do you see? is missing from the help that God extends to us today. Nothing. It's all there. So I've got this sock drawer. Actually, I've got more than a sock drawer. I have this this big dresser drawer. And I don't know, guys, if you're anything like me. I, I hate spending money, but I even hate spending money more when it doesn't have anything to do with like backpacks, outdoor gear, guns, or like fishing rods. And here I am walking through Costco one day, which I do not enjoy. And we're buying big bags of pistachios and all this stuff that I know that we're going to be like storing and eating on for months to try to save money. And as I'm walking down this aisle, I can see it's like 30 feet ahead, there's this big dresser and I'm thinking oh no I'm seeing all my dreams of new tents and backpacks fly out the window and sure enough Allie and I walk up and she stops and she's just got this glow about her this their eyes are kind of twinkling and I know yes this would be a wise purchase I don't want to make it though and after a couple moments she and I decide yes this would be a, a great opportunity for us so we purchased it We got it home, we got it upstairs, we were living in this little uh, 1,200 square foot condo, one car garage condo in Alaska, and I considered all the stuff that I had that could fit into this dresser, and then considered all that she had, and so I took the three little drawers that were off to one side, and I gave her the rest that were, you know, six, the three drawers on one side, the three in the middle, and that's how it's been for the last 10 years. I've got those three. She's got the six. Top drawer is sock drawer. Second drawer has t-shirts and other stuff in it. Third drawer, stuff that I sleep in. I don't know what's in her drawers. Stay away from them. But I began to have this strange occurrence in my life over the last year. I might get invited to attend a wedding or, or officiate a wedding or lead worship in a wedding and and I had this routine, you know, I'd go to my closet, I'd get the suit that's been 
pressed out, lay it on the bed, get the shirt that's been ironed, lay it out on the bed, and then I'd go over to these three drawers and get everything that I needed. Well, about a year ago, I go to that top sock drawer, and there are no dress socks in there. I can't find any for the life of me. So I said, no big deal, I've got time. I, I took some extra time, ran to the store, got a pair. It was good to go. It was about a month later, same thing. Got the suit out, laid it on the bed. Shirt out, laid it on the bed. Tie out, went to the drawer. No socks again. It was crazy. This time I said, this is never going to happen to me again. So I go over to Meyer and I buy this big bulk bag of black socks, like 12 <laughs> pairs of black socks. And I shoved him in the drawer. It was literally one week later. Same thing. Suit out of the drawer. Shirt out of the closet. Tie out of the closet. And I'm walking over to the sock drawer with this big smile on my face because I'm just like, I own this sock thing now. And I open that, that drawer and there's not one pair in there. And I'm thinking, okay, my mind is racing at this point. I'm thinking, okay, Elias and Gabriel have made sock puppets. Maybe they're in their room. And I'm thinking, well, Allie, you know, I don't know how she would fit her foot in my sock, but maybe she's thought that these socks were hers. And so I go to that top drawer that I've never been into in 10 years, and I open that up, and my jaw drops. Because in that top drawer, ordered perfectly by color, are all the dress socks that I've ever owned in the last 15 years. (laughs) You see, for me, it wasn't a lack of provision. It was that I was looking for that provision in all the wrong places. And I think the same is true for us, isn't it? You see, like Genesis 3, we sin... We feel guilty, and we hide from God. We're embarrassed to come to God with what we've done wrong, or we've grown to love our sin to the point where we don't want to come to God with it, so we go somewhere else so that we can forget about it for a time. I just want to say that if you're living there today, you're not alone, we've all been there. But there's a better way if you'd be willing to accept it. You see, in choosing not to run to God with our sin, it means that we're choosing to run into the arms of another. The one whose character qualities are the exact opposite of God's. The one who seeks to kill, to steal, and destroy John 10.10. I can think, I I know I can speak for you in, in saying that I think that we all think that that would be a pretty bad decision. Also choosing to run away from God is running away from the very provision of God. The very things that God has determined will help you the most. Some of us in this room need to allow God to change our perspective of him. Do you believe God to be a hard, angry disciplinarian? Or an aloof, uncaring dignitary? We need to really seek him out, don't we? We need to let him teach us about what he says about himself, we need to let his very presence, the presence of his Holy Spirit, come and change us. We need to be filled and changed by his word, even his word today. We need to be, uh, we need to break through and understand that God is really a patient God. He's full of understanding, full of sympathy towards you, 
not just a generic sympathy, but a sympathy towards you, towards me. That he's shared in our weaknesses. And then he has in his hand every bit of provision that we would need to make our escape from temptation and be free. His sympathy is aimed at our liberty. Will you receive that sympathy today? For some of you, it might be the first time that you ever bowed down your life to to Christ and received Him as your God and as your Savior, your sympathetic high priest. For many of us in this room, it'll be the 50th or 100th or maybe the 1,000th time that you've bowed your knee to Him and said, again, I just want to be yours and I want to receive from you the life that you would want me to live, not frantically searching around in all the wrong places, but looking exactly, exactly, exactly where the help will come. If you're willing to go there today, guess what? Some of the pieces of the puzzle of your life will have just begun to come together. And here's our third and final point today. God's sympathy towards us teaches us something. It teaches us how he wants us to interact with the world. You see, sympathy begets sympathy. The sympathy of God creates sympathy in our hearts for others. You see, for us to experience life the way that God's designed it to be experienced, we receive, there's a dance. We receive mercy. We grow and change and become more like God. And then we get the opportunity to, again, extend that mercy. Don't forget Jesus' purpose for coming to the earth. Our passage today shouts it. That he shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives have been held in slavery. I really want to camp out here for the few minutes that we have left today. You see, as much as Jesus' sympathy isn't an end to itself, our maturity isn't the end either. You see, passing the purity test wasn't Jesus' only objective in life, and it's the same for us. Life is not like the Olympics that we just watched this last winter, where the athlete pulls off the performance, stands on the podium, the flag raises, the music plays, they receive a medal, and the deal's done. Jesus lived sinlessly. He really did it. Not just story time Jesus. He, in a time in history, really lived a sinless life, Two kinds of perfect. Perfectly God. Perfectly sinless. Perfectly God. Perfect, the perfect provider of salvation. He endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. Hebrews 12. And what is that joy? The scripture tells us that it's in part his inheritance. What is its inheritance? Ephesians 1.18 says it. Tells us. His inheritance is you and me. But not just us, but all who would receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and follow him. 
You see, the blessings of God, the Father, ultimately poured out on Jesus were not intended only for Jesus. They were intended to be extended to the nations. Intended to be extended to the nations. We can see it in God's covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 12. See, he was blessed to be a blessing, wasn't he? He was blessed and his offspring were to be a blessing to the nations. The sympathy that calls us to God's throne to receive help in our time of need is a sympathy that's intended to be extended to all. And we find this principle all through the Bible, blessed to be a blessing. We see uh, ourselves loved that we might love. Uh, We're commanded to forgive as we've been forgiven. A comfort as we've been comforted. In fact, uh, Dan Thompson reminded me of this passage just last week. It's 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. It's our last passage today. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And that's it, exactly, isn't it? But as we end today, let's look at this passage just a little bit deeper. What is the provision that God equips us with to extend to those who need comfort? You can see it in verse 4, can't you? Do you see it? The comfort we extend is the very comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Doesn't that make it simple? I mean, you, you run to God for help. God extends his comfort to you. You then later have something good to give someone else in their time of need. Wow! But this passage also very clearly has a different side to it, doesn't it? That if we're not willing to go to God for help, if we're self-sufficient, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps type of people, if we don't go to God for help, call out to God when we're in desperate need, what provision then do we have to extend to others who are needy? It's like the blind, it's like the blind uh, leading the blind. And I don't think any of us want to be that type of guide. You see, the best guides in life are those who really know the trail, huh? I think that Rod and I think about Rod and Liv in Israel. It's kind of showing us where to go. We would have been lost out in the Negev without them knowing the way. The best spiritual guides are those who really know the Savior. They might not be the smartest, they might not be the most polished, the most perfect. But you can tell that they've been many times to the place that they're suggesting that you should go. And that's God's will for all of us in this room. It's God's will for all of us in this room. Not to memorize answers, but to have been touched and comforted by God himself. And then to take from that comfort and extend it to others in need. Jesus, who was perfectly God and was perfected in his body through suffering, understands our weakness and extends real sympathy towards us in order to help us. And that mercy 
that sympathy he would have us now extend to the world. And the result? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord and God of all. Would you please stand for a closing benediction? (laughs) I can't believe I just said the word benediction. (laughs) Therefore, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's exactly what we pray for today. We're just simple, Jesus. Simple-minded, you know that. I'm simple-minded. I just want to pray just right according to what your Bible teaches us to pray. You say that it would be your will for us to know you, follow you. You invite us to run to your throne of grace. You extend real mercy to us. I want to thank you for your mercy in my life over the last two days. And I just pray for this little family, this little flock of yours. Would you just come? Would you speak kindly to our hearts and draw us to you? Would you truly allow kindness to be the thing that leads us to a life that just says we're sorry? Where we return to you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.